Here With You, A Memoir of Love, Family, and Addiction is the powerful story of a mother's struggle to save her son from addiction and the strength and hope for change that she found in her grief. Uh, the book is written by Kathy Wagner, and Kathy Wagner joins us in studio today. Kathy, thank you for uh, coming by and chatting with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this book. Um, we were talking a little bit during the newscast. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, how uh, your son Tristan first began experimenting with drugs. Sure. Tristan was 14 when he began experimenting. It didn't seem like a huge stretch to him, um, or even particularly to me. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter at that point was using drugs recreationally. I didn't approve of it, but I knew it was happening. And he was following in those footsteps. I grew up you know, in, um, with friends where we all experimented, maybe not quite at that age, but mm-hmm. I assumed it was a phase and he would grow out of it. Um, it- did you see any change in his behavior as he was using recreationally? When he was 15, he stopped using recreationally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he was using drugs when he was 14, he was smoking weed on occasion, um, or he would go and take ecstasy on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And a change in behavior was he wouldn't come home those nights. So there was a lot of battling going on. But it wasn't till he was 15 and he had discovered cocaine that the real problem started Mm -hmm. and then everything changed. His moods changed. He was angry. He was despondent. He was um, depressed. um, He dropped out of school. He stopped really engaging in his martial arts, which had been as passion for him. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of changes uh, when he was 15 and started using cocaine. What were you going through as a mom at that time? Walk me through your, you know, what goes through your mind, uh, uh, because that's a lot to take as a parent. It's a lot. And I was a single parent, and I just really... Honestly, at first I was in denial. Like I said, I thought it was going to be a phase. He would grow out of it. Everything was going to be fine. I had all sorts of... Um, evidence in front of me that he was struggling beyond just a normal kid dabbling, but mm-hmm. I was not seeing it until I was forced to really look at the situation. And then I just did everything in my power to try to get him help. So, you know, I would phone the treatment centers. I talked to my doctor. Um, there was nothing available for him because there's there's no help to be had for a youth with addiction or mental health issues unless they choose to have help. And he didn't. So I took it on myself. And so I ended up investigating. And the only thing he really loved that I thought he might love as much as using drugs was his martial arts. Hmm. So I found um, a place in China um, with a, a kung fu school over there that takes foreign students. And I went over there with him for, the, for five weeks and to make sure it was a good space. And he stayed there for his entire 16th year when he was 16, studying Kung Fu eight hours a day, five days a week, and uh, not using drugs during that time. So that was, that was my creative solution to a problem. Um, so when, you, you left him there. He, mm-hmm. was, he was studying every day. Um, so he was able to... To, to get away from the addiction, and he was doing a lot better. He was able to get away from the drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly, now looking back and having talked to him, you know, throughout years subsequent, his addiction uh, 
he had an addictive personality. He was drawn towards things in the extreme and he had some obsessive compulsive tendencies. Mm -hmm. Those did not go away. So, and neither did any of his thoughts about drugs. He had told me later he was thinking about drugs all the time, but he didn't have access to them. Mm -hmm. So he did, you know, his brain continued to develop without chemicals. He got some good successes and he had, you know, pride in what he was doing. He formed a community and he had all that to come back to. Mm -hmm. But he didn't address the root of his addiction. So when he came back, he just fell very quickly back into it. So you had the same problem when he, when he came back in that he was still a minor. Yes. And he did not wish to seek help. And you as a mom had to see all this. Yes. So I was watching it replay out again, you know, in various ways. And he ended up going back to China for a little bit. And that was not as effective. We, he ended up falling in love with the kitchens around this time. He started cooking um, and went into culinary school. Mm-hmm. So then that became another, another passion for him. But he was using throughout his entire time. Mm-hmm. When did he seek treatment? Not until he was, he was 20 years old. So he had graduated from culinary school, had done extremely well. He um, was working in some of the best fine dining restaurants in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. He was living on his own at that time because I moved him out when he was 19. Mm -hmm. And by the time he was 20, he could not hold it together anymore. He was unable to keep a job. He was not paying his rent. And he was facing uh, homelessness unless he did something. He knew at that point neither I nor his dad could take him back. Mm -hmm. So he chose to get help. Uh, and and so was he better after that help? It made all the difference. You know, the last 14 months of his life, he was in recovery. And although it was not a straight line for him, it was a bumpy road. He was in and out at different times. He came back. Like, he, he became himself again. I had my son back. Mm-hmm. My daughters had their brother back. He made friends, good friends. Um, he contributed to the community. He helped people. He... You know, he was joyful again, even though he was also still struggling. He was working through his issues. He had a lot of, you know, he was depressed. He had ADHD. He had trauma to work through. Mm -hmm. And he was doing that hard work, but he was um, so connected to other people during that time. So, um, yeah, I will be forever grateful for that time with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, You lost Tristan. Um, uh, when you wrote this book, this memoir, why did you feel you needed to, need, why you needed to write it? Why did you need to write it? I think there's really two reasons. One is, um, it's how I made sense of not just his death, but his life and my experiences living through his addiction, recovery, relapse and death. So the writing of it was cathartic for me, but right from the very beginning, the purpose of my writing it was to help other parents to feel not alone. Mm -hmm. When I was raising Tristan in addiction, when he was young particularly, I felt very alone in it. There was nobody I knew who understood. I tried to find support groups and not, I didn't find one that was a good fit at all. Mm -hmm. And when he was in recovery, that also started me on my own path of recovery, looking at my own life and thinking, okay, what how can I live a life of purpose and meaning regardless of what my kids are doing? Mm-hmm. And I found hope in that. And when Tristan passed, I wasn't ready to give up that hope. I needed, I needed to share it with others. So even though it is um, a tragic outcome for Tristan, 
I, what I hope and what I've been hearing from some readers is that it actually is ultimately a book of hope for anybody who's struggling with a loved one in active addiction or who has lost somebody. Um, you know, th- it's a message that there is always hope, even if it looks different than what you ever expected it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you lost uh, Tristan to fentanyl. It is an ongoing issue in our society, an ongoing conversation. Um, and we have um, uh, quite a passionate conversation around treatment and decriminalization at this point. Um, and I sometimes find, listening to callers, uh, that people fall into that camp of looking at the view through a particular political ideology. We need more treatment centers, more um, enforcement from police, and then maybe I'll look at decriminalization. Then there's those on the other side. Your perspective, this as a British Columbian who, who also was watching this very closely, what, what kind of advice would you want to give to elected officials? Uh, David Evie was sitting exactly where you were just a few days ago. But what, how do you see this conversation in our province? I think that there is a complex problem. You know, there is a drug toxicity crisis that needs to be addressed as a drug toxicity crisis. That needs to be um, somehow addressed. And that's where the decriminalization comes in, the harm reduction. There is also a mental health and addiction crisis. And that needs to be addressed, often through treatment, regulated treatment, um, a spectrum of options for people. There's so many, it's such a complex problem, we cannot just have one solution. It needs to be Um, everything from harm reduction to abstinence-based treatment to everything in between, and it needs to be the person's choice. Currently, there is not a lot of choice to be had, Um, frequently no choice, and the choices that are are very expensive. So there's very few options for people. I I don't think it's fair to say we cannot provide treatment to people until we solve the drug toxicity crisis. I also don't think it's fair to say we we need to root people through an abstinence-based recovery, even though they have no intention of doing that. Mm -hmm. We really need to look at this from a human perspective and figure out where people are at and how can we help them where they're at today. The book is called Here With You, A Memoir of Love, Family, and Addiction. It's the powerful story of a mother's struggle to save her son from addiction and the strength and hope for change that she found in her grief. Uh, the author is Kathy Wagner. She is with us. And, you know, if uh, you're out there looking to buy a book that gives you some optimism, I highly recommend it. It's called Here With You, A Memoir of Love, Family, and Addiction. As I said, uh, Kathy Wagner is here with us. Um, Kathy, one of the things, you know, as you now are chatting is, you know, and I, I have a, a 14-year-old home at home as well. And as a parent, you know, the, the fact that if the individual, the child doesn't want help and you want them to find help, and if they don't want that help, there's, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to do anything about it. Um, I find that really hard, not just to comprehend, but I understand why the rules are there, but there has to be something better, does there not? <laughs> That's exactly what I've been bashing my head about for a decade now. There has to be something better. And yet, I don't know, I honestly do not know what the answer is. For sure, when Tristan was 15, if I could have admitted him to a rehab center, I would have, Mm -hmm. whether or not he wanted to. Um, 
I know for a fact I would have done that. And whether or not that would have been good for him, bad for him, or in between, we'll never really know. I do know I have talked to some people who anecdotally have had good experiences from forced treatment. I also know for a fact that people have had very bad experiences through forced treatment. And hmm. I, so I think that there's continuing research being done on that. And I do believe in human rights and be in, you know, people, you know, you know, their own um, ability to choose for themselves. But when a youth is experiencing mental health illnesses and addiction to the point where they are unable to choose something f based on their own wellness, then a parent should be able to do something. Mm -hmm. I think the main problem it, right now is that there are not enough viable options for help. There is not enough support given to the parents who are struggling. There are not enough options that the youth might um, connect with. For example, um, Tristan ended up in an alternative school for at-risk youth because of his drug use behavior. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, they could have partnered with him, him with somebody, say, in recovery or who had experienced drug use and was now beyond or doing something else. He could have seen a role model in recovery at that stage. Maybe that would have resonated with him. Like there's got to be other options that have not been explored or, you know, if, if we can't send our kids to treatment, mm -hmm. then what are we going to do? We can't just leave them to die on yeah. the streets. Yeah. And we're still seeing that every, every month you get these stats that come out in regards to people we've lost to, to, to um, uh, fentanyl. And, it, and, it, and as a developed nation, you would think, uh, whether through enforcement, through help, that we would not be seeing these stats. But we're probably into year eight or nine of this emergency. Yeah. Uh, and it's still not, um, we're still not solving it. And that, that's, that's unfortunate. My final question to you is just, um, this is a book about optimism and... Um, and, uh, you know, your journey to me is fascinating. What would you want to say to the public about optimism, no matter what kind of life you've had and what you've had to deal with? And talk to me a little bit about for you and your journey as a mom, as an individual, and, and how you are still an optimist. It... It's interesting. I mean, the book, while hopeful, is not necessarily an easy read. And I think that's, that's what is so important to remember in all of our lives. We don't always have control over all aspects of our lives. And some of the aspects are terribly, terribly difficult. And yet we always have control over certain things within ourselves. We have control over um, our thoughts and our feelings to some degree. Some days we only have control over whether we're taking the next breath. When I was in very early grief, it was like, just breathe, just breathe. Mm -hmm. But it's being open to accepting the gifts around us, not taking anything for granted, um, recognizing that we are responsible for our own lives. And unless you have minor children at home, you're not responsible for anybody's life except for yours. So for me... I found hope in remembering to, to, that I was in control of my life and could make my own choices and that my life was just as important as my son's. I try to give myself all of the things that I wish my son had because I'm also somebody's child, mm -hmm. right? And um, I want for me everything I could have wanted for my son now. 
Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. It's never easy. Uh, I know you've done a few interviews, and uh, I just really appreciate you coming in today and um, uh, just sharing uh, uh, your story as a mom, as an individual with our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.